Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Jeff Ertz, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thank you, Paul. Great to be here. Uh, I really do appreciate you joining us. Uh, your, your friend, my father-in-law, Al Draper, connected us. And he's been talking about you being on this for quite some time. And I'm like, well, just give me his number and tell him I, I'm going to call him. And let's get this done. And we ran into each other uh, about, what, a couple weeks ago? Right. Yeah, yeah. at a, um, a bereavement um, reception after a funeral, actually. Yeah, for uh, George McFadden. It was. Yeah. And uh, it was a sad day. But the bereavement group uh, does a great job, The Alan Draper and Joanne and and the rest of the guys that and gals that work that uh, really do bring comfort to people when they need it the most to kind of regroup after after burials. Yeah, communities need people to do those sorts of things and to be reliable at those uh, moments when the family are they're going through a tough time uh, at an event like that or a loss like that. So it's it's wonderful work that you guys do at the church. It, uh, yeah, we we enjoy doing it. It's it's really a privilege. We look at it as a privilege. To be able to serve the community in that way. Yeah. And, and uh, you're also a member of the Knights that we'll talk about here in a little bit. But I want to start with uh, where you grew up and, and explore your childhood a little bit. Sure. So, so where did you grow up? I grew up in upstate New York um, between the Adirondack Mountains and the Catskill Mountains uh, in the River Valley there. And my folks still have a place up uh, in quite a bit further north, uh, not far from Lake George. Okay. And Lake George is known for, for what beyond just recreation on the lake itself? Is it known for anything? Oh, well, is it, Fort, is it massive? Yeah, well, Fort Ticonderoga was there. Uh, uh, it goes all the way back, Revolutionary War okay. and pre-Revolutionary War. Lake George sits uh, between the state of Vermont on the north end mm. and New York State. Okay. And so there was a lot of troop movements from, from the French colliding with the British um, in that area. Uh, in the early years. Yeah, a lot, a lot of their fighting was in the, uh, I guess, that part of what is now the U.S., and, and it spilled over into what is now Canada, too. Right, yeah. yeah. The French and Indian War was up there, and then the American Revolutionary War. You know, the Battle of Saratoga is, is closer to where I was born in, or where I was raised. I was born, actually, in Utica, New York. Okay. Uh, it had this distinction when I was a, a teenager of being the safest city in America. Which really? Which is pretty amazing. Deemed, as deemed by whom? By uh, the FBI and the crime reports. Okay. Uh, it's the safest city in America. It was just, uh, you know, a pretty amazing uh, town in those days. How many people were there? It was days? a city then, so whatever that, that mark of a city would be... Uh, uh, my, my wife's just from down the road, a place called Little Falls, New York, and their distinction is it was the cheese capital of the world uh, in the late 1900s. Because a lot of dairy cow, that sort uh, of thing? Dairy, and then uh, just the climate was great for cheese production, and and uh, the first water-fired plant uh, you know, factory was built in mm. Little Falls, New York uh, by uh, uh, Cheney. Okay. Uh, hammer company okay and they made uh hammers uh and tools impl- steel implements there using water power wow. as the force source of energy there so wow, that's pretty cool yeah that's really cool uh so what you grew up in would you consider it a, a town setting uh more rural yeah pr- probably uh we grew i grew up in a neighborhood but it was surrounded by farmland right so i grew up hunting and fishing and out, uh, being in the outdoors, I owned my first canoe before I owned my first car. Mm. 
uh, I ran a trap line on snowshoes with my younger brother. Describe a trap line. A trap line is a, uh, it's a journey through the woods and streams and forests, and uh, you pursued um, fur-bearing animals. Uh, many times we were trapping in in farmland where uh, muskrat and mm. and uh, other animals were actually a nuisance to the farmer, but a welcome source of of recreation and income for us uh, as kids. And uh, we bought our first canoe with money from the trap line, and uh, oh wow, it was quite an adventure. We'd we'd go out um, uh, right right after school, and we'd get home at dark. That was the only rule in my house growing up was you had to be home by dark. So your education after the school day was actually out in the woods. It was. Yeah. I grew up in the woods. And, you know, there was a cabin with a potbelly stove that we'd stack with firewood in case we got wet on our trap line. And and uh, it was mainly farmland, uh, you know, with ponds and streams running through it. So we'd hunt and fish and trap trap uh you know close to the house it's an amazing childhood you, you it, probably have fond really fond memories sure we were blessed to have it i mean it was truly a great place to grow up really good schools uh w- went to shaker high school and uh uh we had a um olympic size indoor swimming pool really and i graduated in 1975 so w- way ahead yeah. of its time and everybody in the school uh, all 350 kids that graduated with me had to be able to swim before they could graduate. I, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I, I think, think it's, it's a great, a great thing. thing, and it certainly yeah. saved lives. Very different from what I saw when I moved uh, um, south. I was assigned to Mecklenburg County on the North Carolina state line right. in Virginia as my first duty post. And, and the first summer I was assigned there, we had 19 drownings. Oh, my gosh. In one summer. and um, That's incredible. Yeah, as a 21-year-old new law enforcement recruit dealing with 19 drownings was was really hard and i couldn't understand uh how a population could have so few swimmers and be blessed with a reservoir like kerr reservoir right and and like gaston but i came to realize for many of those people um the parents and the grandparents of those people that were drowning didn't have a lake they had a river Mm. So they never had an opportunity to learn to swim. It was moving too fast. So, yeah, yeah really, the light caught, light caught them kind of by surprise. In their, It wasn't important for kids to learn how to swim because all they had is Roanoke River at the time. Right. But as that reservoir filled and people started recreating, then um, that became problematic. And we a lot of our work on that lake in the early years were uh, to get people to use safety equipment like carry life jackets on their boats. If you can't swim, wear a life jacket when you're out on the water. Right. Um, so it was a big educational push for us and an enforcement push as well to get people to carry that equipment and have it in good shape and available uh, for people. And it, as the years went on, because I was there twice, I, I was there for five years as a regular warden, then got promoted to sergeant and sent to Tidewater. But when I was promoted to training lieutenant, they moved me back to Mecklenburg. I saw a vast difference in the um, the ability of people to survive on that water five years later. Yeah. You know, because people started to learn that when you go out in a boat, you need a life jacket. Yeah, education is a resource, and it has to be available for folks uh, in order for them to learn. And the, the equipment has to be there as well. And I imagine Mecklenburg is... Uh, 
back then and certainly maybe even in today's terms, still fairly rural uh, and not a lot of access to things that people live in larger towns and cities uh, take for granted. I think when, when I first lived there, it was a one-stoplight town. Right. Uh, South Hill was, was the, and Clarksville on the other end of the county were the two uh, communities that, that um, were, were larger in nature. All the rest really were small, really small hamlets. Um, and, and people just uh, didn't know, but they learned with, with uh, steady educational work and enforcement work uh, what they needed to survive and stay alive. And, and really in the later years of, of my career, uh, compliance was great down there. I mean, people that came to Lake Gas and Bugs Island Lake, when they saw a patrol boat come up to them, they had everything out. Right. They had their boat registration. They were proud. They they were proud that they had their stuff right, and and we praised them for uh, for having their equipment right up aboard their boats. And as a result, I think uh, um, fatalities went down in that lake system from the early days. Yeah, it would have to. Wow, that's an incredible story. Nineteen in one season. One summer, it was hard. Unbelievable, especially at a tw- as a twenty-one year old. Yeah, you'd never seen anything like that. Uh, right? No, I, I, I never saw. You know, one or two, yes, but uh, yeah, it, it's tough. Wow. Let, let's go back to your childhood. So, sure. when, when you were not in your house or at school, you were on the trap line. It sounds like. Yeah, or or fishing in the summers. Um, I was expected to bring fish home every Friday night for a family of six. And it was, uh, you know, it was an embarrassment when, when my brother and I would walk in without fish, um, embarrassment and and disappointment. It was, you know, yeah, yeah, for the rest of the family, we, we didn't, uh, it was, uh, probably, uh, uh, macaroni and cheese for dinner that night. Right. Uh, otherwise it would have been, uh, a bass or, or, um, the, the pond we fished in was was a, a water supply for the steam engines mm. in the old days, and then as time went on, a, a nice couple um, built a home on the water's edge, and my brother and I walked down one summer's day and knocked on the door and asked if we could fish in the pond, and we're we're pretty much promptly told no. Wow! And uh, a couple of days later, uh, we received a call at the house, and the man said. I checked you out with our game warden and he knows you. And he says, you come from a really good family. If you and your brother would like to come down and fish, um, you're welcome to, but I'm going to ask you a favor every once in a while. And I said, boy, we're, we're glad to do you a favor. So we wound up building a footbridge for him and, and, uh, we, uh, he needed muskrat trapped out of his pond because they were undermining his trees that would fall into the lake. And, um, so we did that kind of work for him for years, and um, it was a great place for us to go and fish and worked, and be, worked be for everybody, right? It worked for him and it worked for us, and and uh, he worked for General Electric, and uh, really great, a great man, and and got to know him and his family. His kids at that time were grown um, away at college or or beyond, and so he was kind of. It kind of was nice for him to have some young guys around to yeah. help him set a ladder up or take a ladder down or clean a gutter out or something like that. And to have the company, too. And the company. You know, yeah. He and his wife were lovely people. Yeah, they just needed a, a, a reference to make sure you were in okay. Uh, he checked it, <laughs> checked us out, and he was satisfied. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, you mentioned bass. What, else, what other kind of fish were you catching back then? Back then, in that pond, uh, funny story— um, the Ellsworths were their names, um, allowed a bait, 
a bait supplier to stock their ponds with uh, shiners. What are shiners? Shiners are minnow. Okay. They're fishing. Yep. And the bait, the bait man would come in and net the pond for the shiners. Well, eventually, Mr. Ellsworth decided he didn't want the bait fisherman in that pond anymore for some reason. So the bait fisherman brought, brought a bucket of a largemouth bass and dumped them in the pond to eat all the minnows <laughs> so that no, nobody else could come in and net the minnows, which was a great thing that he stocked that pond with largemouth bass. Right. Because then, um, but the problem with ponds, as you know, is if you don't harvest the bass out of the ponds, they get stunted and they get all 12 inches or less. Right. A pond full of 12 inches or less fish is, is not great fishing for, for most people. Right. But for, for young guys uh, with, with private ponds not being regulated by the state, you know, you catch 20, 12 inch bass at the time uh, out of a private pond. It was perfectly legal and, and good for them. And then eventually, as the years went on and we continued fisher, those bass got bigger and bigger and bigger, and you'd catch an 18-inch mm, largemouth. That's, a, that's really, a big bass. You know, really nice bass out of the pond because it got more in balance with with the way it needed to be. Um, no predators. No more stunning either. Yeah, no know? more stunning. Yeah. You took the stun out of it. I, is bass good eating? Yeah, oh, yeah. Largemouth bass is a good eating fish. I don't think I've ever had it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, it's really good. Is it uh, sold in restaurants? Around here, uh, no, because it's a freshwater fish that's, uh, uh, you know, that's not, uh, not for sale. It's illegal to sell largemouth bass because there's so few of them. No, because it's a, a recreational fish. Oh, uh, gotcha. Not a saltwater species or a, a harvest harvested fish. Gotcha. We're going to talk more about that. Yes. Uh, all right. So when you're graduating high school, what did you think you were going to do? Did you know? I absolutely knew that I wanted to be a fishing game officer somewhere. Okay. And I applied from Alaska to Florida. Oh, really? You applied and, everywhere? Uh, yeah. After I got out of uh, college and I um, went to a college that was fi- fishing game based. It was a techni- uh, ag and tech school called Cobleskill Ag and Tech. And uh, I studied fish and wildlife there, knowing that that's what I'd need in my back pocket to be marketable across the U.S. And Virginia called me um, first. Mm. Uh, I was working for the University of Buffalo Foundation as a fisheries technician uh, at Ganae Nuclear Power Plant on Lake Ontario. Okay. Lake Ontario is like an ocean. If you've never it's, seen it's it. It's massive. Yeah. It's massive. And uh, we did fisheries work uh um, checking the the water quality and the impact of the nuclear power plant on on that cold water system mm, up there. Right. And actually, what we found was, in a cold water system, a warm water power plant uh, just caused fish and uh, fish life to boom, mm. and it was a tremendous um, a rookery for. <laughs> for for fisheries right. um, in those plumes of warm water going into the cold water lake. And we monitored uh, those fish. They Samples were taken for, you know, testing. Um, and it was just an amazing job. And uh, that was a grant job, and it ended in the middle of winter. And when I left Rochester, New York, the uh, I was driving a 62 Buick at the time, and the, the center ornament on the hood was all I could see driving down the road. Oh, wow. Because the snow was so deep. Yeah, that's crazy. And uh, when I was hired by Fish and Game in Virginia, 
I was working as a, a water lab tech, a test and drinking water for the town of Colony where I was from. And, um, and I was glad to get out of the lab, get back to the woods. Right. Um, and, and the, the job of game warden was just, it's everything I expected. And, uh, and more. How old were you when you knew you wanted to do that? I was probably um, eighth grade. And how did you know it was even a, a possibility? I knew a game warden. Okay. Um, and uh, he was a special, they called him special game wardens. He was a part-time game warden for the state of New York. And uh, he was the guy that gave me my first trap. He took me to my Hunter Ed class at the uh, Rod and Gun Club. Um I thought he was um, just the greatest man I've ever had the pleasure of knowing. And uh, he looked out for us. He made sure we knew the regulations and he, he uh, guided us, um, you know, in our trapping and our fishing and, and uh, our hunting. And he was just a, a wonderful, wonderful man. Sounds like a great guy. He really was. Is he still around? No, he passed away a number of years ago. He he was not a young man when I was, a, you know, a, a young boy. Right. What's his name? Uh, Jake Krug. Okay. He was a wildlife protector in Alaska. And they used to fly him into the salmon runs. And he'd stay in a tent. And He uh, loved being outside. They, they, they airdropped his food in. Uh, to him, um, you know, air, by plane, and he said one uh, rotation they missed him, and he had how no long? Food. How long was the food supposed to last? Oh my gosh! And uh, so he uh, was able to uh, eat salmon because he was on. His job was to guard the salmon runs, allow the uh, Inuit people up there to take so many salmon out of each run, and then it was shut down. Right. And he was able to survive on salmon. And then uh, finally, he said towards the later part of the month, he just was starving for red meat. He said, I've just got to get something. And uh, so what he did was he uh, he laid up in, on a salmon run and shot a bear. Mm. And uh, the only problem was he said he, he was starving for red meat. And he said he, he was just so excited that he was going to have a good dinner. He cooked that bear steak in his frying pan over his campfire, and he tasted that bear steak, and it tasted just like salmon. Because that, <laughs> those bears, that's what they were doing. That's what they They were in the run, <laughs> gorging on the spring that's salmon. That's awful. Run. That's and awful. And he said it. it was just such a disappointment. I bet. He said, but then I had the bear I had to consume, and so there was no choice. He consumed the bear. Yeah, know? wow. But, uh, you know, he was a he was a guy that, and, and my dad as well, uh, always taught us growing up that that uh, wildlife was a gift mm. and that it was a resource that needed to be protected and honored and and um, uh, not wasted. So if we were uh, trapping muskrat and happened to catch up, you know, uh, some other animal and we put it to use. I mean, there was nothing wasted. Right. And I'm still that way. I, I, I don't waste a lot of uh Food, I don't waste a lot of resources, uh, and I have always protected the wildlife resources of the state. Uh, what's the most difficult thing you've ever hunted? I should say animal, not thing. Probably um, trapping fox was the most challenging mm. as a youth. Uh, we had red fox and gray fox in the farmland, and uh, they were somewhat problematic around some of the the farms that had uh, chickens. They'd go you know, after chickens hands, in a heartbeat, right? And uh, cats and, you know, and the, 
fringe areas of neighborhoods and uh, we had there weren't a lot of stray cats in the old days because there were so many fox. Right. But uh, yeah, that was probably the biggest challenge was fox trapping. Because they're so sly. They're- yeah, and they're you know uh, young trappers don't have the skills that mm. that more experienced trappers do. And you know, I learned most of what I learned out of books and magazines. And uh, so applying those techniques in the field, sometimes uh, I think we missed a step or two. And <laughs> and uh, but we did eventually, you know, catch fox and. Uh, you know, we trapped fox and raccoon. Uh, there were a lot of raccoons in those days, mainly getting into tra- trash cans in the neighborhoods at night. And uh, we we, uh, we trapped them. And uh, But we used uh, humane traps, uh, mostly, once they came on the market, you know. Yeah. And uh, we never had a problem with, uh, with anybody in the community. I, I know uh, when we caught our first fox, somebody thought we caught a dog and called. The game warden on us, and uh, when he came out, he uh, said, "Really nice gray fox you got there," and uh, we were proud that we were able to get that fox, you know. Uh, and uh, somebody, uh, probably from their house, saw us walking with a fox, and they thought it was a dog. Maybe and, didn't have great vision or well, something. Well, they uh, a gray fox and a a dog do. Oh, do really? Some look somewhat similar huh. to people that don't know wildlife well. Okay. Wow. So it was, it was an interesting... We have red, red fox around here. We have reds, and we do have grays, too. I, I, uh, I can't remember the last time I saw Grays are, uh, they call them tree foxes, because they, they're the only fox that can climb a tree. Hmm. And uh, they're, uh, they inhabit brushy areas, and, and fox like more open areas. Uh, so they're, they're a similar species... <coughs> Excuse me. They're a similar species... But they have inhabit different areas. So you you did a lot of trapping as a youth. Did you also do uh, hunting with bow and arrow? Shot, I did shotgun rifle. I did all those, and uh, enjoyed them immensely. Our deer populations in New York at that time weren't all that um, tremendous, and so in that local area there weren't many deer. So we didn't hunt deer. Much because uh, you really probably shouldn't if unless they were yeah overpopulated we, yeah it was a uh, open farmland and long before um, we were of the of age um, they pretty much disappeared uh, in that area that plenty of deer in New York State of course but and and in the north of us in the Adirondacks and south of us in the Catskills tremendous deer populations as well but being young and being on foot. We uh, we didn't uh, range, but so far, right. and uh, no turkey, no de- no deer in the area where we were from. But now there's turkey and there's deer there, hmm. just like Virginia. Yeah, we have deer everywhere. Yeah, deer are, are literally in what every state in the continental U.S. Just yes. about right. They're everywhere. Yeah, yeah, and they're they're challenged. I know in in western New Jersey and and uh, and some of the northern. Uh, populated states, uh, they're having a real problem with deer being hit by cars. Yeah, and uh, not that Virginia isn't. We we have a tremendous amount of deer hit here as well. Yeah, I think if you lined up a uh, hundred people between the ages of thirty-five and sixty, I think half of them would say they've hit, hit a deer in Virginia. Yeah, I my son's hit six, <laughs> going back and forth to uh, his job. Wow, 
Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, that's unbelievable. It's terrible. Yeah, my son's hit one as well. I've, I've never hit one. Yeah, well, knock on wood. Yeah, well, absolutely <laughs> knock on wood. <laughs> uh, all right, so you've, you finished college, Virginia calls, and you end up uh, being offered the, the tech role. And when did you become a warden? How old were you when you became a warden? I was 21 um, when I became a warden. I went through a, a regional police academy, uh, Central Virginia Regional Police Academy out of Lynchburg. Okay. Um, but it was held satellite in South Hill, hmm. or uh, uh, Boyden, Virginia, actually. Well, this is back in the late 70s. Yeah, it was. And um, we went through the police academy with police officers from Lynchburg, the city of Lynchburg, um, South Hill, Broadnax, Lawrenceville, that whole central uh, section of the state. Uh, Mecklenburg County Sheriff's deputies mm-hmm. were within our, within our class. And let me tell you, um, having worked at uh, police academies that are only one jurisdiction and go into it, a police academy that was multi-jurisdiction, there are a lot of friendships and benefits forged in regional police academies yeah um currently fish and game has a has a closed police academy uh, similar to a lot of other sheriff's offices and police departments in this in the state and in the country uh, but there were a lot of benefits to uh, regional academies yeah i'd imagine those relationships are not only powerful from a personal perspective but they're also powerful organizationally oh they are and they they build um Working relationships that that go outside the classroom beyond the first uh, felony arrest I made as a warden um, was about a month after I started after my assignment to uh, Mecklenburg County, and uh, a police officer from South Hill Police Department uh, by the name of Mike Mayer, uh, I think he rose to the ranks. I think eventually he probably became chief down there was in my graduating class from mm. the academy. And I stopped by South Hill Police Department to uh, say hello to him. And a call came in just outside the town limits of South Hill out of his jurisdiction of a murder. Oh, mm. So I told him, I said, jump in my car, we're going. Because it's at your- the time, fish and game officers were conservatives of the peace and had authority to enforce the law um, you know, for serious felonies, uh, threatened to life, limb or property uh, type crimes. And um, so he jumped in my car and we uh, caught the youth that had killed his uncle with a shotgun um, running across a tobacco field. He still had the, the shotgun in his hand when we were chasing him. And we ran him down and he, uh, before we could get to him, he threw the shotgun into the weeds, but we had marked, marked it and were able to recover it. And the uncle was uh, laying in the farmyard with a screwdriver in his hand where he was working on the tractor. He was just working on his tractor. And, uh, well, there was a story behind it as well. But uh, it was was because of that academy relationship that I had backup that day and didn't have to pursue that felon on on my own. Yeah, because he had a loaded weapon, presumably. He had a 12-gauge shotgun, a single shot, thankfully, and... I think he fired the only shell he had, but you didn't know that when you were chasing him. Right. Yeah, he could have had a, a, a six shooter, or he could have had more right. shells, with yeah. it, you know, in his pocket. But, uh, but the story was, uh, the uncle asked his nephew to hand him a screwdriver, 
and the, the uh, nephew did not react quick enough for the uncle. So he slapped him. Mm. And the youth went into the house, took the shotgun off the mantle, loaded it, walked up behind him and shot him. Wow. In and the, that was the end of that. In the in the back sort of thing. Yeah. Right. Intending to kill him. Oh yeah. There was no there was a clear close range. Um but when we got there it was July. Uh the dust in the farmyard was like stepping onto the moon. Mm. It was about three inches deep. Wow. And uh he when we arrived the tractor was still sputtering and uh, you know, the kid was running across the back of the field with a gun in his hand. Was he old enough to understand what he did? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was, he was of it. He was of age. Oh, wow. But he was young. Yeah, that's uh, that's crazy. tragedy all the way around. Yeah, not not great for anybody involved. No, tragedy. Yeah. Was that your first murder as a warrior? Yeah, it was. It was. It, it, it didn't take long. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so it sounds like there's one warden per county. Do I have that right? That's the way it was when I was working. I, I'm not sure what their staffing levels are now. Uh, Mecklenburg was did have two wardens when I when I was working, and there were some other counties that way because Mecklenburg had the lakes. Right. It was just tremendous workload and and really to f- effectively work patrol boats, it, it was a lot safer to work with two people, especially when you're young and inexperienced. Um, I actually started my first boat patrols. On Lake Anna, mm. with uh, Francis Boggs, he was a he was an old old warden when I was a young man, and on weekends because I was from New York and everybody else was pretty much from Virginia, everybody would go home and I'd be left, you know, pretty much by myself in the hotels. So I asked the major that was in charge of us, Major Lewis Brandt, a wonderful man. I said, "Can I work on weekends with wardens?" Anywhere in the state, I was willing to drive. He said, uh, yeah, you can. He said, but he said, we aren't going to pay you for that. I said, I'm not looking for pay. I'm looking for experience. Yeah. So I worked every weekend through my academy experience um, with wardens across the state. I worked with Francis Boggs up on Lake, uh, on, um, Lake Anna for a number of weeks. And then they started sending me south to Bugs on Lake, Lake Aston. And those guys um, took me in. And wanted me to be assigned there, so I wound up starting in Mecklenburg. Yeah, and th- those weekends while you're in the academy were probably as informative and educational as uh, Monday through Friday classic instruction. It, I imagine both parts are critical to your development. But I had a head start on a lot of the guys that I was in the academy with uh, that didn't have that opportunity to work on the weekends. Um, I mean, they were home with their family, yeah, they, they, but they, yeah. they had advantages as well. But I was glad to get. Uh, get the experience because the biggest boat I had ever driven was probably a, you know, 15 foot uh, John, John boat with a motor on it. And, you know, we're running uh, yeah, 16, 18 foot patrol boats with twin engines on them. And they can, they can move. Yeah. And you have to learn how to operate those safely and in close quarters, you're coming up to boats of all different shapes and sizes from canoes to yachts. And, and you need to learn, how to do that and uh, it was great experience and uh, served me well when I went to Tidewater as a sergeant then we were dealing with uh, you know really big boats massive uh, Chesapeake boats. Bay and yeah. and uh, the uh, intercoastal water Elizabeth River and North Landing Rivers um, all sorts of watercraft um, some 
some of the yachts we'd pull up to during Harbor Fest in the Norfolk Harbor had helicopter pads on them and, and Mercedes sitting on the decks with with boats as big as ours. You you have to ask yourself when you're coming up to these yachts, who are these people that own uh, yachts with Mercedes and boats on top? It's unbelievable. But we we enforced you know the law the same for the yachts as we did for the canoes. Yeah. It really um, we just were impartial and fair and kind as we could be and tried to educate them as well. Um, about the the boating safety laws and Harbor Fest was a, a party on the water back oh, then. Boy, it was, yeah. It's like the Wild West show um, for for those weekends, and uh, we were very busy with with the court systems in the city of Norfolk and the city of Portsmouth with the uh, people that that had way too much to drink, that were way too dangerous with flare guns and yeah. you know setting other boats on fire. It, it was crazy. Yeah, there are a lot of people um, when I was a a kid and maybe into my 20s and 30s and i'm 53 now it, it felt like people just felt like they could the rules were very different on the waterway and right. it, it's not that way now but it certainly felt that way when i was much younger it was an educational process for a lot of people to come out of that that recreational mode that you know we can go and do with this is my weekend and and i can be wide open to right. realizing that unlike the roadway when you have an accident on the water you sink below the surface yeah and so if if the accident didn't kill you, the water did. Right. And uh, so it was an educational process with us. And, and the courts really worked well with us, Damon, and the, especially the city of Norfolk. Judge Jordan down there was a great judge. Um, and he was very supportive of what we did and, and who we were and what we we're all about. As uh, time progressed, uh, our enforcement officers had full police powers. Um, and it was no problem for us because we were trained with full police powers when we were in the academy. And then we were granted those powers by the General Assembly a year or two after I, I hit the field. Um, so basically your entire career you had full I did. Yeah. And the academy training was, was the same as, as the city officers and the county officers had. So we didn't have to be retrained or re-coordinated, you know, reoriented. Uh, in what we did, but we did focus on fish game and boat enforcement, environmental law enforcement, um, historic resource protection was something in later years I got our people involved in uh, looking out for the historic resources of the state um, because a lot of the uh, sand dredges that were dredging that was going on in the Appomattox River was really hard on the on the wildlife or the fisheries resources. Right. They dredge up all that sand in these sand dredges uh, after Civil War artifacts. And um, so there was a loss of historic resources to the taking of the artifacts off the, the state uh, state property. But in addition to that, all that silt would flow downstream and smother uh, spawning beds of mm. uh, saltwater and freshwater fish. So it, all those... Just too much salt. The, the just too much silt. I mean, silt. you know, it's just too much... Uh, it ju just would smother them. So there were both environmental impacts and historic resource protection impacts that were involved in that. Yeah, I, I guess my comment about it felt like people didn't think about boating the same way they do today is there's a lot of water in the state of Virginia. I mean, between the, the bay, all the, the, the large rivers that feed into the bay, uh, the lakes that we've talked about, it's just, I, I imagine there were times where you felt like uh, your, your department whether it was local in Mecklenburg or wherever you were in the state or across the entire state, you guys had to feel undermanned at times. We did. And, you know, I think that's always the challenge of a state, 
or a self-funded state organization like Fish and Game, our, mm. our, we operated back in the old days solely on hunting and fishing and boating registration. Oh, so it was all... It was no uh, other than the federal... There was some federal dollars that came into Fish and Game from the purchase of firearms, you know, Dingle uh, Johnson, um, the Lacey uh, Putney Act, both funneled some federal funds that... Uh, are tacked on to when you buy a fishing rod there's a federal tax there that come back to fishing game organizations and when you buy a firearm there's federal dollars that come back to fishing game organizations that money other than that money that was in the old days that was the only money we had Mm. as our responsibilities broadened in the state and and we were called to do other other roles including drug enforcement there became a need for state the state to try to help fund Fish and game enforcement, especially, and uh, so there were there were some some dollars that flowed from the state side into fishing game. It's amazing. When did that start flowing from the state? Um, roughly, maybe eighties. Okay. Yeah, I mean, not that tremendously long ago, but yeah, you know, a, a while ago, and uh, and then there's some non-game responsibilities that were added in in um, the, the towards the end of my um, tenure there that also helped uh protect those resources you know species like um um american eels Mm. uh elvers they call them baby eels Uh, we did a lot of work uh towards the end of my career at protecting that resource well why is that important um uh, a saltwater species that comes into freshwater uh, why would that be important to freshwater fish a freshwater fishery agency well, that's the food base for a lot of freshwater species in our rivers. Mm. And if you lose that food base, that can cause a, a degradation of that uh, fisheries resource in those rivers. So we started enforcing uh, those regulations where that saltwater, freshwater line was. Right. And the old days, I think a lot of those, uh, those areas were avoided by wardens and avoided by the MRC officers because... It was, well, I don't want to get too close to where that line was. Mm. So there was a like a no man's land really there. Mm. But as time went on, we defined those areas better. We uh, worked in cooperation with, with the Marine Agency better. And we were able to kind of attack some of these these issues. We had people coming from Maine to Virginia illegally, illegally taking baby eels. There was so much money in it. Wow. Um, not too long ago. Uh, Elvers, those baby eels would sell for two thousand dollars a pound. Um, the price that's is, unbelievable. The price has fallen to about five hundred dollars. It's a pound still unbelievable, now, but it is, and it was poaching uh, across interstate lines. Uh, it was occurring in every state on the eastern seaboard, and Virginia really discovered it first, and then reported it to the other states to be on the lookout for this activity in in February and. Um, and we uncovered it, made some arrests, the rest not being the issue, but really uncovering a, a whole market. And yeah. they were shipping it over to Asia uh, for uh, some of the Asian countries. Um, American eel, full-grown American eel, is their turkey huh. for, the, for uh, Thanksgiving. Really? That's what they eat is American eel. And what they do is they take those baby eels... And they'd put them in plastic bags, and they'd in, in, inject those bags with air, mm. and 
seal it, seal the bag, put it in a styrofoam cooler, and ship it back to uh, Asia. And uh, they'd raise those baby eels to full-grown eels in hatcheries and sell them in the food trade. Unbelievable. I have no idea. And it was it went on for years. Uh, under the nose of yeah, count, pretty much countless so. agencies. Yeah, and in Maine, it's legal in Maine to uh, do this. Mm. And that's where those people were coming from is they were they were um they were taking advantage of those a gap in the system the gap in the system right yeah uh so over the course of your career would you say you, you spent more time on the water or more time on land because of my duty assignments i spent probably uh more time in the water and you you enjoyed being on the water i did but we also in the fall of the year would transition Pretty much out of the boats, into the woods for, for deer season, turkey season, small game season when it came in, and and uh, but coastal areas we also had waterfowl enforcement. Mm. Inland fisheries. I've never just uh, figured this out. I, I guess I could Google this, but I'd prefer to ask an expert. What does inland fisheries mean? Does it mean freshwater, or does is there a line between inland and what's on the other side of that? Yeah, marine. Okay. It's the marine salt line on water is where fish and game, you know, uh, it's now they call it Department of Wildlife Resources, where they come in contact with salt water. Um, that is the line between our our agency and uh, marine resource commissions. Okay. Regular, you know, their agency. The so, difference being our agency is primarily recreational people. And their agency is both recreation and commercial fishermen. Gotcha. So uh, I'm very familiar with the Rappahannock River. Right. Uh, and uh, I'm very familiar with uh, part of the river that you can see the bay at. Right. Where's the line? On, on the Rappahannock? On the Rappahannock. Paul, I would have to look that up <laughs> because it's been, you know, 16 years. But it's, it's significantly far away from the the Chesapeake, because there's it's salt water there. I mean, we can call it brackish. Well, right. is brackish considered salt water? Uh, it depends uh, where the that line is. Uh, you know, yes, uh, some of the freshwater areas uh, are brackish. Okay. Um, some places it's very clear where the line is. It's a, a fault line. Okay. You know, it's where the tide tide stops and the and the freshwater starts. Um, other places it's a line that's been drawn. Yeah, and there has to be mutual and agreement. And it was, it's through mutual agreement years and years ago on where that line would be. Oh, gotcha. Okay. But there are lines all over the, the state. There. there are lines all over the state. And and this Elver um, issue was... Exploited the, because it was near the lines. Well, it was on the line. Um, mm. And it was... So that created some issues for, for sight uh, and awareness. But also... It is where that um, they were most vulnerable to illegal harvest is uh, where we first found them. I was an area sergeant in, in Tidewater in Chesapeake, and one of my uh, counties under my uh, watch was Suffolk. Hmm. And we found the first elver, illegal elver harvester at the, um, the water supply dams for Suffolk city of Suffolk um, and they had da- actual low level dams and the elvers like to shimmy up those water 
courses to get into the fresh water and it's a impediment and it narrows mm. and it was perfect for them to do it and was we, too easy yeah. and we found nets and we found uh air tanks and we found plastic bags and all hidden in the woods they left them right there and they'd come in at night um and we caught them on a rainy night it was pouring damn rain and we were we were huddled up in the pine trees how did how did the first person you think figure out that elvers would be popular half a world away I, I mean, it's unbelievable. I don't know. There must have been um, somebody that that uh, found them and Realized came they... in contact with somebody from from Asia that knew the value. Yeah. Wow. And so then it started being exploited. Similar things were happening with black bear in Virginia um, back in those days. Um, bear galls were being sold on the Asian market. What's a bear, like a, a gall? gallbladder of a bear. Because it's edible and... Well, they use them for Asian medicine. Uh, hmm. And uh, so what they do is they'd kill a bear, and they were actually killing bears and removing galls and leaving the bear land. Um, some oh. There was some harvest by legal, quote, legal harvest by sportsmen, and um, they would sell the bear gall from the bear, which was illegal to sell back... Back in those days, I, I'm sure it's still illegal now in Virginia. And uh, we uncovered that going on in Virginia and, and made numerous arrests across in West Virginia. They had it going on. We cooperated with them. We cooperated with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service because those those gallbladders were being moved across state lines, yeah. which is a federal violation. And in addition, um, the park police, um, National Forest, uh, we had interaction with them on those, and we were pretty broad in our our um, our work with other agencies, uh, federal and state agencies. Um, I'll never forget. I got a call one time when I was in Mecklenburg about a somebody, uh, a landowner, a farmer that I knew, called me and said somebody's either hunting squirrels during closed season or has a still back in the woods. Two very different so, things. Yeah, two di- very different things. But uh, so I contacted our ABC um, agent and uh, we worked together and he went back and checked it because I thought it was more likely that it was a still than <laughs> squirrel problem. Than squirrel problem, you know, illegal squirrel hunter during close season. And of course, he found the still and eventually arrested the guy that was operating the still in Mecklenburg. Wow. So, you know, who, who'd ever think outside of Franklin County you'd find stills in the woods, but. Uh, my great aunt ran uh, moonshine back in the day. Yeah, that's, that's, it's quite a popular thing. Find them the anywhere. Yeah, and that's what I came to realize is, and it was very close to the state line. I mean, uh, with you could have thrown a stone and hit. And those fringe areas where where two states come together, where even counties come together, separated by a watercourse. Mm. Uh, in the old days, those areas were um, weren't weren't protected the way they are today. They were exploited. And they really, many times they were exploited. And uh, that changed as I advanced through the ranks because we paid really special attention to those areas and and really got the cooperation going between organizations and even wardens in adjoining counties. We used to check each other's areas when uh, when we had a day off. Um, It was a necessity, Mm. uh, but it was more than that. It was getting familiar with... With that fringe area, you know, Meharan River separated my county from Brunswick County and Lindenburg County when I worked in Mecklenburg. And 
And uh, I'll never forget, I, I asked the colonel for a canoe to patrol the Meharan River. And he said, no, you can't have a canoe. And I said, but the area is a fringe area between Mecklenburg and Lindenburg County, and I think I can do some good by patrolling that watercourse. And he said, you got, the, you got two lakes to patrol. Patrol those. So I went out and bought a canoe <laughs> and uh, started patrolling the Meharan River. And I made arrests for shooting deer out of boats. I made arrests for trespassing. Uh, I made arrests for uh, fishing without licenses in the areas that people probably had been doing it for 20 years because they'd walk or drive way back in some some path that a warden would never get into right. uh, in his patrol vehicle. But when you come down around the bend in the river and there's five or six people fishing there yeah. and don't have licenses and everybody knows you need them. Um, and what that does, though, those arrests, is it changes behavior. Right. And that's what we're after. Yeah. We were after then, and I'm sure they're after now, is voluntary compliance. And for some people... That's a talking to. For other people, that, that was a summons. And uh, um, normally it only happened once. And normally it was a nominal fine uh, for first offense. But eventually, you know, with some people, it takes more than first offense and their privilege would be revoked for a year. And, you know, their equipment would be seized. Mm. And, you know, those kind of penalties imposed. Right. You know, habitual offenders are habitual offenders. And... And uh, one of the things I did see with serious wildlife violations is many of those people were felons. Mm. They already had a criminal past. Only about 8% of the population of the country um, is criminal at the felony level. Have committed felonies and are prone prone, uh, to do it again. So they're felons, 8%. Um, And I think similarly, what I saw in Virginia through my, you know, 27 years uh, was about the same amount of people commit serious wildlife violations, Mm. about 8% of of our population. Give me an example of a serious wildlife besides the the Shooting deer at night off of roadways onto private property, uh, uh, poaching bears, uh, hunting during closed season, um, arson. A forest land, you know, uh, intentionally burning the forest. Yeah, uh, who does that? Uh, killing cattle um, at night. Sometimes it's accidental. Uh, accidental during an illegal be you know during illegal behavior, of course, Paul. But right. but uh, the end result's the same. Um, when you shoot a black Angus cow in, in the field in a in a field thinking it's a deer at night, and then in the morning the farmer goes out there and finds his prize Angus cow laying in the field, um, that's not good. Not good at all. Yeah. It's his livelihood. Right. Yeah. Uh, what is the craziest story you have from your 27 years? Craziest story. It can be crazy. It can be funny. It can be intriguing. This isn't probably the, the funniest or, or most interesting, but it's a, a story in human nature. I was working the fringe area between the state of North Carolina and the city of Virginia Beach on one spring day. And I saw a boat with five people in it, a small John boat, very, very little freeboard, (laughs) 
You yeah, know, it's not meant for five people. John, not meant for five people. Yeah. Barely above water, but they're all fishing. And I saw them come into Virginia fishing. So I stopped them and I said, gentlemen, you're in Virginia. You don't have Virginia licenses and you need them. And um, you have enough life jackets, but you're not far from the line. I'm going to ask you to go back into North Carolina where, you, where you're licensed. Paul, I waited, drove down the road, waited about a half an hour and drove back. And here's the boat further into Virginia, all of them still fishing. Are there no fish in North Carolina waters? So I waved them in. I placed them under arrest at that time. If you were from out of state and you were committed a violation, fish and wildlife violation, you're required to bond them out. Mm. I took them to the magistrate. They bonded out. I took them back to where they came from, which was I didn't have to do, but I did take them back. And um, when they came to court, I explained the story to the judge. And the judge just looked at the guys and he shook his head and he said, I don't think the state of North Carolina would have treated you guys so kindly mm. and imposed a fine and uh, told them to get their licenses before they came back and fished in Virginia. Were they just being lazy? I think they just thought that fishing game enforcement was just a, a process of checking licenses and moving on. Yeah, gotcha. And it's so much more than that. Yeah. Wow. um, For us. So you you did 27 years. Uh, What's your fondest memory in in those 27 years? My fondest memory. Could be about the people you you knew. Could be about uh, something that you're really proud of. Probably teaching hunter education in the mm. public school system down there. Oh, that's cool. Um, for years afterwards, I'd have young men and young women, and you know, from South Hill and and that area, and, and Blue Stone High School, and and uh, come up to me and uh, uh, talk to me like an old friend. Wow. And uh, at the time, you don't think you're making any difference in their life, but you you come to realize later on that um, you do make a difference and their lives are enriched by your your experience with them. I had a kid one time, a young boy that was um, hunting in the road. He was 12 or 13 years old. And he, at that age, he had to be supervised by a parent or guardian. And the guardian was a little bit too far from him. And he was standing in the middle of the road with a shotgun loaded. I came around the, the bend in the road and my patrol car pulled over. And I talked to the, the boy and explained to him that you can't hunt in the road. You got to be up on the other side of the ditch line, faced away from the road. And Paul, he was small enough that I could pick him up. And I picked him up and put him on the bank mm. and, um, and redirected him to a safe location and went down the road and talked to the guy that was supposed to be supervising him. And I said, you need to be closer to that boy. He can't be that far away. I wasn't a mile down the road and I got a call from the magistrate's office in in Boyden and, 
And um, the dispatcher uh, said to me, uh, the magistrate would like to talk to you. And I didn't know what it was about, but I drove into the magistrate's office and uh, went in the magistrate's office and uh, talked to the magistrate. She said to me, um, Jeff, you just stopped my son down the road. And I want to thank you for the way you treated him. And I said, I wouldn't have treated him any different if if he was uh, a stranger, but I didn't know it was your son. Right. But it really didn't make a difference on how I treated him. But I appreciate your kind words. And, yeah. and it's that kind of experience that that uh, really makes you feel like the job was, was uh, you know, your chosen profession. Yeah, and everybody loves to hear that reinforcement because it actually boosts your morale, your, your energy for what you're doing. And, yeah, hearing that from time to time is yeah. definitely helpful. And as a young warden, I didn't know what I was getting called to the, the principal's office about. And I, I wasn't sure if uh, the magistrate was going to provide some guidance for me on how to do my job better next time or... But I had no idea it was her son. I mean, I didn't even know she had a son. Yeah, chances were it was going to be a negative experience. I, I <laughs> expected that it probably would be at that point in my career. Yeah. All right, so you rose to the level of chief. Uh, I did. Effectively, yeah. like an 06 in the state police rank. Right, right. sure. You, you, that's you, it. Colonel. Yeah. Colonel, you're running the whole thing. Yeah, I was. I was. Uh, how many people that started uh, as an early 20-something end up being the, the colonel of the whole thing? Or the chief I was of the, whole the thing? second colonel that came out of the ranks in the history of the department. Really? Where did where did the other... Uh... They were wildlife biologists. Huh. So Gerald Simmons was a major when I went to work. He was from Mecklenburg County. I was assigned to his, to, to his home, home county. So everything I did was... I was interacting with his friends that he grew up with. Wow. Um, and Gerald Simmons was the first. He rose through the ranks to major when I was there, and then eventually he became colonel. He was the first. Um, following Gerald Simmons, they brought in Joe Lynch from New York State. He was the uh, chief of law enforcement for New York State Fish and Game. And he came in, and he stayed about six months. And at the time... I was a newly promoted captain, and uh, they interviewed uh, nationwide. They had a nationwide search, and I I'll never forget it. I was young. I was 35 or so, and uh, every time you would go through the next tier of, of interviews, I'd go home and tell my wife. I said, man, I can't believe it. I, I made the next cut. I made the next cut, and when they got down to the last two, uh, one Friday afternoon, I was called into the the agency's director's office. He's appointed by the governor. And he said, Jeff, I know you're young, but I'd like you to take the job as chief. So wait a minute. So the U.S. Army has lieutenants, captains, majors, lieutenant colonels, and colonels. You Correct. skipped from captain to colonel? I did. <laughs> That's unheard of, right? It was. It, 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 and it, it was a... I had a lot to learn, but I had really good people that helped me one of the things it did give me was that field experience and innovation that I carried right into the boss's office. It wasn't, it wasn't 20 years from the time I was a major to, you know, or 15 years. I brought, we changed the uniforms. We got them great boots and great warm coats. We got, you're taking uh, care of the guys. We got rid of yeah. the, uh, 
uh, the state police rain jackets. You see a state trooper out here directing traffic in those long raincoats down to your ankles. We bought Gore-Tex tops and bottoms. We bought GPS. We bought all the latest, greatest. Uh, we computerized the field force um, way ahead of any other organization in the country. Uh, I was at a um, meeting one time and we were talking about computerization and and uh, one of the guys in the audience, one of the wardens from another state asked a question about computers. And, and I asked him, I said, do you have uh, a laptop? And he said, I've got a lap. <laughs> um, so all he those, was halfway there. All those things <laughs> yeah. were, for us, leaps and bounds uh, from where we were um, in the old days when I started with uh, Army surplus irregular boots is what they'd issue. Mm. And now our guys had feet, boots that would keep their feet dry. Uh, they, had proper, they had proper equipment. They did. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the radio system uh, improved vastly through the years because of uh, a state-level initiative. And, and we were partnered with the state police on that initiative as well as a lot of other state agencies. So it was all good. Yeah, that's uh, – you. how long were you chief? About 15, 16 years. So a long time. A long time. For a chief. And it sounds like you accomplished a ton. I was pleased. You know, we put AEDs, defibrillators, mm-hmm. in the hands of wardens statewide because many times when there was a critical medical I- issue or a critical um, law enforcement issue, a warden was one of the first people on the scene. Right. You know, because they had that cooperation with other sheriff's offices. And... I, I used to talk to the new incoming sheriffs every year and explain what our guys were and gals were, what they did, and, and how we could interact with them if they'd call us. Um, some of the big city police departments, it was kind of a different, you know, a whole different a dynamic going on. Um, they knew who we were, and, you know, they, they talked to us on the cell phone when we had cell phones. But before that, it was I was in Tidewater, uh, and down there... Norfolk PD, Chesapeake PD, you know, Suffolk. We would get calls from their dispatchers, but we never interacted because there were big, huge departments. Massive departments and maybe didn't see right. uh, fish and game the same well, way. They, they didn't, and they had other priorities, and as we did. and But that didn't mean we didn't make inroads. I, I remember uh, I was uh, on a point one day, and there was a guy shooting uh, seagulls. Illegally, just for sport. He was who does, who does that? Killing him. And uh, I walked in behind him, and I was in, you know, engaged with the guy. And all of a sudden, I heard a helicopter, and I turned around, and in the field behind me, Portsmouth PD landed. Their police department landed in their helicopter, and uh, the guy came out. He said, "Got everything under control." And I said, "Thanks for backing me up. I appreciate you." Yeah, and. Uh, but it's that kind of thing. But it was really more of an individual contact thing, right? Which, which, in in rural counties, um, you have a prison break at a correctional facility, right? Mecklenburg and Lunenburg in particular. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah but even you know, uh, South Side, all South Side. One of the first people you'd see on the scene would be a warden. He'd help track. He'd help search. You know, he he provided a another officer in a. In a sheriff's office that probably had six people in some cases. Mm. Now they had seven. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it was great. 
No, that's awesome. So you did uh, 27 years total, we mentioned. Right. Uh, you were not 50, right? I, I went out at 50. I retired. Right at 50. At 50, at 50 yes. Uh, and so were you retired, retired, or what was your, your next phase of? I was retired, retired. I did go back um, and did uh, and work a, a small job for, for fishing game afterwards, helping the non-law enforcement side of the organization make use of the computer training system mm. that the state had that was underutilized. And uh, so I went back briefly for that. But really what I did, uh, Paul, was transition to a different kind of public service, a public service to help feed the hungry, to help house people that are homeless uh, or couldn't afford housing, and um, to comfort people on some of the worst days of their lives after they've lost a loved one. Right. And uh, it, it's it's just as rewarding a work. The only difference is there's no paycheck. Yeah. Uh, at least not in this world. Right. I, I, I hope there's a paycheck later on in, in the next world. But uh, and Is that entirely through the Knights of Columbus? Most Yes. I would say it is uh, through the Knights, my work in the Knights of Columbus. Yeah. And how big is your chapter? Is chapter the right term? Yeah. Uh, council. We have council. a... About 320 members. That's that's big. Our, yeah, it is a big council. Um, I think that's correct. And uh, we're uh, we have probably 150 very active people. Um, we we um, we work. We have worked in cooperation with a food local food bank for 21 years. Mm. And I've been working for you know helping with the food bank for 16 ever since I retired. And uh, so uh, we moved 20,000 pounds of food from one grocery store, local grocery store in, in Hanover County. And uh, that food would go in the dumpster if we didn't pick it up. And it goes to feeding the hungry. It's still edible. It's Well, they, they, the meat is frozen um, as soon as they, they take it off their shelves and they hold it for us. The produce is kept in cold storage. And we move it to cold storage. And um, we feed 77,000 uh, pounds of food collected in the same way at that food bank every year. And and the nights are a big part in, of that food distribution. Yeah. It's amazing work and important work. It's important work. And, you know, we produce enough co- food in this country to feed everybody. Yeah, there's no question. We just that. need to be innovative and creative on how quick we can get it to people that really need it. We are quite uh, wasteful as a society. And we can do better. And we, we, we do are doing better, better in, in Hanover County, Virginia. We, we are making a difference, I think. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, is that where you met my father-in-law? I did, okay. uh, through the nights. Uh, Ashley, uh, your father-in-law and I cooked together. Um, I he, gave, he loves being in that kitchen. Yeah. I gave up my, uh, my shield and my gun and my uniform, and I put on a, a work apron in the kitchen and a, and a, a fluorescent vest at the food bank, and uh, that's what I do now. You have you always enjoyed cooking, or is it just uh, who you're cooking for is what matters? I think who I'm cooking. cooking for is more important than than the the work. But we uh, we cook for uh, meetings, we cook for church events, we uh, we we used to cook for the French Food Festival mm. uh, in the city of Richmond that was held every year. Um, I'm we, surprised French Food Festival. I would have expected Italian. Maybe instead we are under a we are under a chef, okay, a professionally trained chef, and uh, we uh, we were the Cajun tent. 
and that was our charge. <laughs> that sounds fun. It was great. We had a wonderful time. And uh, the Little Sisters of the Poor, who ran uh, um, nursing homes for the poorest of the poor in the city of Richmond mm. for 130 years, um, they've been doing this. They finally closed their doors this past year. Because of the pandemic? You th- no, no, they were having trouble um, getting nuns to work to run the facilities. Wow, that's sad. So they had to close their doors. And uh, so no longer the city of Richmond and the surrounding area had the French Food Festival. They're they're hoping to revive it. And if they do, I'm confident our Knights of Columbus Council will will be in cooperation with other councils that that help with the same thing. Uh, the council covers a ge- geographic area or it's certain well, churches? It's it's mainly, in our case, a church. But they're, the furthest member... I know of we we have is a guy in Dinwiddie that used mm-hmm. to be a parishioner that moved, but he, he still wants to be part of the council, and he still wants to be part of the council. Yeah, the priest that left our church was reassigned in a near nearby parish. He's still a member of our council. Father, he wants to be a member. Is of it our Father church. Jim? Father Jay. Jay okay. Wagner. Because today the the priest at the church is Jim. And then before him it was Jay, and before him was, was Jim. Jim. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Father Jay Wagner is the priest that that's are going to be our chaplain next year, and uh, you know he's a he's a great guy. He, yeah. enjoy, he just so enjoys being part of that organization. No, that's fantastic. Well, you're doing great work, and uh, I imagine there's a lot of camaraderie, and there is, and you know, uh, and there's not a um, a world or, or national incident that the Knights of Columbus isn't involved in. Just recently, with Ukraine um, and the needs of the people that are fleeing Ukraine and the people that are in Ukraine, the Knights of Columbus decided that they were going to try to raise a million dollars to send for relief. Paul, they raised seven million so far, and uh, they're sending that to to help the refugees in Poland and surrounding countries as well as Ukraine. Um, that's what you can do with the largest Catholic men's organization in the world. Yeah, if only every organization was so giving and every person who's a member of the Knights was uh, as giving as, as the Knights are, I imagine how wonderful the world would be. It's, it's a, you know, the, uh, the Midwest tornadoes. Mm. Our council decided we wanted to help with that situation. I know we're a small, relatively small group of men in comparison to what the the major organization is. And uh, so immediately we, we put out the word, we're going to collect money for tornado victims. Kentucky Knights of Columbus was the first organization in in those impacted states that put up a website for giving to that cause. So we raised uh, a couple of thousand dollars immediately and sent it to Kentucky Knights of Columbus. Mm. And we raised a couple of thousand more and sent it. In those disaster scenes, there's help coming. But if you're standing out in the rain in your pajamas and you have nothing to eat and no place to sleep, that immediate money is so critical. It's before insurance can pay off. It's before federal aid programs can it's step not bureau, in. It's not bureaucratic. It's, yeah. it's immediate. And what was happening was some of those councils were walking around with gift cards from Walmart and, and, and other vendors and said, here, you're standing here in the rain with your family. You need a place to sleep. You need food to eat. You need clothing. Take this card. 
and go get what you need. Yeah. And that's what we did as a council. It was just part of a bigger a push that came later by our, you know, national organization. But, right. you know, in the shootings in Virginia Beach a couple of years ago, I don't remember when the courthouse complex down there was attacked. Um, we were at, we, we had a pancake breakfast at church that, that occurred that weekend. And I put a plastic jar by the coffee pot and said, aid to the victims of the shooting in Virginia Beach. And we sent $700 yeah. there that Monday after that shooting to help with what, what people needed. Yeah. That's, and that's, that's what awesome. small, agile organizations can do. We can do it quicker than bigger organizations that will come later. And they're all important. But that immediate action kind of can spark the first 24, 48 hours yeah. kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's so important to those people. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's uh, it's inspiring. Right. That's really cool to be a part of, and I imagine it's been fulfilling ever since it, you it is. started. It, it's, it's a joy. Just It's just a different kind of public service. All right, I'm going to awkwardly pivot to okay. a question we ask most of our guests towards the end. Um, imagine you're a talk show host. It could be late night. It can be middle of the day. But you're going to have guests, and you get to decide who those guests are. Uh, they can be alive or dead. They can be famous. They can be people that you know. Um, they they can be entertaining. They can be thought provoking. It's whatever you want them to be. One one man, one woman, uh, and musical group. And this is meant to be a little more revealing of, about you. <laughs> oh, the man would be Teddy Roosevelt. Okay, because of his natural resource mm. uh, foresight. He was the, he's the national parks. President, do I have he, that right? He is, and he's he created the Adirondack Park in New York State, which is the he's lar- from New York, the largest, right? You know, largest state-owned public watershed protection program in in the country. Um, is Roosevelt the proper way to say it? Because I I grew up saying Roosevelt, Roosevelt, because yeah. there are two O's there, right? Yeah, yeah, two O's. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Female. And as you're thinking, Teddy was also the only president, I think the only person to ever win both the Congressional Medal of Honor and the Nobel Peace Prize. He's the only person to ever have done both. Madame Curie. Okay. Would be the woman. Um, boy, if there ever, ever was a time for a, for a biological genius is now. Yeah, yeah. With the pandemic we just came through. We need another. We need another. Uh, and we do have them. They're out there. They're working every day to try to solve these issues. And, and God love them. Yeah. And God bless them. Um, music. I'm a James Taylor fan. Okay. You can't go wrong with James Taylor. <laughs> yeah, just, it, I, he was my era. And uh, I like country music a lot. Um, and I mainly listen to country music now. But uh, James Taylor is kind of in my soul. Yeah, he's he's a fantastic musician. He's got a very soothing voice too. Very cool. All right, let's end with talking about your family. Tell us about your your family. Um, my wife Maureen. Uh, I met her in college. Uh, she's from a little town in upstate New York called Little Falls, known as the cheese capital of the world in the late nineteen or early. Early 1900s. Um, it's a mill town. 
Everything's on a hill. Mm. And it's snowy in the winter. And everything slides <laughs> through those intersections. There's not a stop sign on a down street in the whole whole city. Mm. It's all cross streets wow. because there's no way to stop at the stop sign <laughs> in the winter. Um, she's my one and only. We've been together uh, for 43 years. And um, I we have two children, Christopher and uh, Jennifer. Christopher uh, is a nuclear security officer at the uh, power plant on Lake Anna. It's kind of funny. His circle came back to my circle on a start at Lake Anna. And um, my daughter, Jennifer, is married and lives in Williamsburg now. And she teaches uh, in the York public school system. She's a biology teacher. Mm. So uh, you, you could probably teach her a few things or have taught her a few things. Well, I think I taught her a few things about the outdoors and and she'll call me from time to time with pictures of tracks and and insects and and wild things um and uh i love it that's it, a great way to bond with your daughter that's it is awesome. yeah. we we have that in common and she does love the outdoors she she likes to canoe and and uh be, be outside and uh um chip off the old block it sounds like. yeah i have two grandchildren one from each uh of my children and uh both girls that uh, um, one is a fisherman, and uh, the other will be a fisherman. <laughs> <laughs> Whether they want to or not, or Whether they, they want to or no, no, they'll they'll embrace it like uh, like all the others, uh, you know, have. That's fantastic. Well, Jeff, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Thank you for all you do with the Knights, and, and thank you for your service uh, to the Commonwealth uh, and to the those localities you serve. It's uh, important important work. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. Great, appreciate having you. you having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.